The Knicks' IQ is quickly on the rise. We break down the Knicks' rookie point guard's big performance Sunday despite the Knicks falling short in Portland. We'll honor the life of a member of the last Knicks championship team as well as the life of Kobe Bryant a year after his tragic passing as the Post's Mark Berman stops by. We'll also chat with one of the more pivotal members of those 90s Knicks teams, former All-Star, Sixth Man of the Year, and my favorite all-time player, John Starks. All that and more coming up next on Big Apple Buckets from the New York Post. Welcome back to Big Apple Buckets, our New York Knicks podcast from the New York Post. I'm your host, Sal Licata, alongside my co-host, former Knicks and NBA big man, Jerome the Junkyard Dog Williams. New episode <laughs> of the podcast drop every Tuesday afternoon. Subscribe to Big Apple Buckets on Apple Podcasts. Go in there and give us a five-star rating. Write a nice review, please. It does help. Now, if you're not an Apple user, you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or Amazon. Call into our Big Apple Buckets voicemail. Leave your questions and comments for us. The number, 973-988-3923, or leave us an email at BigAppleBucketsPod at gmail.com, and we'll answer them on the next show. JYD, unfortunately, a sad day here as we tape this podcast, and we'll get into the Knicks in a second and their West Coast swing that they're in the midst of. But we have to remember the memory of Kobe Bryant, who on one year ago today, we found out the news of his untimely passing and him and you know his daughter, Gianna, and the members of, of those people who were on the helicopter, unfortunately losing their lives. And for me, I just remember where I was. I was in the mall shopping with my wife and finding out the news via Twitter or, or text message on the phone. I, I just in shock. It was one of those things where... You couldn't believe it. Kobe, for me, from afar, one of the players I always loved and respected because of his competitiveness, because of his passion, and, of course, his great skill. He was always that closest to Michael Jordan that I have ever seen. Many people have been compared to MJ. Kobe was the closest that I ever saw, but just shocking when I heard the news a year ago. Uh, you want to talk about shocking. I mean, I was uh, 10 miles from the helicopter crash. I was at... Uh, All-American uh, junior camp for basketball for my son. He had just made the all-star team because we had been there since the morning. So he made the all-star team for that All-American camp. And I was uh, just getting ready to talk to him about the game and you know, kind of tell him what he needs to do. And somebody taps me on my shoulder and says, "Do you hear? did you hear about Kobe? And I was like, hear what? And they said, you need to check your phone. And when I looked at my phone, because, you know, I usually turn my phone off during those kind of um, games. And I looked at my phone and it was messages and different things. And I was just like, I had to step outside. And immediately when I got outside, remember I said I was 10 miles away. I just remember this dense fog. And I was like, wow, it's really foggy out here because it wasn't, uh, the fog wasn't like that when I arrived that morning, sure enough. You know, they said that, uh, you know, there had been a helicopter crash and all these memories of Kobe just came to light. You know, just the things that we had talked about, our competitive games that we had against each other. I remember playing against Kobe and Staples. And typically, you know, I didn't guard Kobe. Usually Grant Hill, Vince Carter, um, some of the greats I also played with. And, you know, but, but uh, being the type of player that I 
that I was, I, I'd end up guarding everybody at least once or twice on the floor. And for a particular series, um, we were small, so I was I was guarding, um, you know, Kobe. And so I remember, um, you know, I, I, I had all of my moves kind of planned out. Um, I got a I got a steal on Kobe the first time um, that I picked it up because I, I, I did one of my patented like uh, uh, uppercut moves. Like I call it the Tyson uppercuts where I swing my arm through his arms when he's lifted the ball above his head. And I got that steal. Then the next time down, I was guarding Kobe again and I jammed him. Um, he ended up taking an off balance jumper, missed it. And then I could just see him fuming. Right. Like I could see and feel like, oh, my gosh, he is getting ready to just unleash everything. Now, I wasn't a talker and he didn't talk trash to me. So the next time down, um, I switched back on the Robert Ori. And so Kobe was looking at me like, man, if you don't come back over here and try to guard me again, I was like, nope, I got to take care of this three point shooter right now. So it was funny. Um, him and I laughed about it after the game, but he was just so competitive. And to be in our draft and to accomplish all the things that he accomplished, he's the most accomplished player from that 1996 draft with the MVP trophies, with, with all of his accolades of winning five championships. But he was doing so much for the game afterwards with the WNBA and, and women's basketball that that's why I'm going to miss him so much because um, we'd see each other on weekends um, in Vegas, he'd come up for his daughter's volleyball games. My daughter played volleyball, so they'd be in the same tournaments together. So I'd see him, his wife, his other daughters there, and we'd talk. And, and it, it's just, he was enjoying life after basketball. Um, I remember inviting him to play with us in the big three. And, you know, and he was like, Rome, I'm, I'm enjoying this time, you know, being a dad, you know, and I wouldn't give that up for anything. And, you know, just seeing the joy in his eye, and you know, those are the things that I'm going to miss because he truly cherished his family, his wife, um, Vanessa, and his, his all of his kids. Rest in peace, Gianna. But, uh, yeah, it's a sad day, Sal. Yeah, JYD, that was really well put. And, you know, that was a tremendous class of 96. Uh, Alex Camerata just texted us a picture of you actually guarding uh, Kobe back in the day when you were in a Raptors uniform at one point and Gianna was on her way to greatness as well. I mean, Vanessa Bryant posted a picture of one of Gianna's classmates and a message of how special, definitely check that out, how special Gianna was uh, coming up. So, you know, that Mamba mentality, girl, dad, everything uh, was really special. I remembered, you know, just being in a bagel shop and just going through Twitter, you see a TMZ first, you don't believe it's real. And then the reports come in. And then a friend of mine said, Hey, I have extra tickets to the Knicks Nets game tonight. And I had to think about, it. I'm like, I was emotional, and this is, you know, we, we all respected Kobe, but a lot of us during his career didn't like him because he would always beat you. He was just better, and he was great. And then I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I could fathom going to a basket. Like, how are they playing tonight? And I, I don't remember one second of that Knicks-Nets game. You could hear a pin drop. And Ma Madison Square Garden felt like it was empty. It was a packed house, and it felt like no one was there. It just didn't feel like a basketball game was being played. I have no recollection of anything from that game because you just could not wrap your mind around losing Kobe and Gianna and the seven other lives also that were lost in that uh, horrific helicopter crash. So 
you know, that was a weird night, an eerie night at MSG. Both teams did it right with the 24-second violations to start the game, but you will not remember what happened in the game because it just didn't feel right to be playing at that point, um, and it was a weird night at the Garden. So rest in peace to Kobe and Gianna Bryan and the lives that were lost on January 26, 2020. And unfortunately, it's something that you'll never forget where you were and how you found out about the news and just one of the more unthinkable tragedies and unfathomable things to, to happen, no question, in life and certainly in the sports world to lose a great like Kobe Bryant and everybody else, his daughter, obviously, and everybody else uh, aboard that helicopter uh, on that day one year ago today. Not easy way to transition into the current Knicks, JYD, but we will do so where the Knicks are on a West Coast trip, and they're 1-2. and two. They got the win against the Warriors to start off things in an impressive game. Even though the Knicks didn't play their best game, they were a little sloppy, still able to get the W uh, on the road in Golden State, and then have had a couple of tough losses at Sacramento and at Portland, games where they mounted big comebacks but couldn't finish off um, those games here, why not just get into the quickly discussion? Emmanuel quickly with 31 versus Portland in that last game out. And a lot of people, JYD, clamoring for him to be the starting point guard. I know you and I talked about this a week ago where we feel like it was better for him coming off the bench. Do you still feel that way with quickly or you want to see him get the starts here moving forward for the Knicks? Well, I'm just saying, you know, less is more, but more is less. I would say start him. Go ahead and put him out there because at the end of the day, when I look at this roster, when I look at the team, he is the future. And I know a lot of people want to sometimes take their time, even me sometimes. But when a rookie scores 31 uh, with your team down in an away gym, that tells me something. Uh, and I, and I, would, I would like to see some more development in that I think he can do it as a starter I would say start him interesting I I like him off the bench I think it's a good fit I like to see him develop a little bit more here and then maybe go for it eventually and you know maybe a weakness gets exposed starting and plus Peyton's done a nice job but either way I know that's a big talking point right now with Nick fans and you know rightfully so because quickly has been an impactful rookie one guy who has not been JYD and I want to get your thoughts on it again after seeing a few more games with Obi Toppin coming back healthy what are your thoughts on watching Toppin here as he tries to find himself and his game in the NBA? Well, one thing I can say that it's being affected is the fact that Julius Randle is playing at an all-star level. You know, those spot minutes to give him a blow are coming far and few between because of the level of Julius Randle. And I think that, you know, Obi is now put in a situation where he, you know, he has to do a lot in a short amount of time, which isn't you know, obscure for rookies, but uh, rookies, you know, in his position would probably expect some a uh, few more minutes, which, you know, right now with the team playing well and, and, and being on the cusp of being able to potentially even make the playoffs, that that's the position that he's in based on the player that's in front of him. So I don't take him as anything like doing anything wrong. It's just a player that's in front of him. It's just hard, though, when you see an impactful rookie like Emmanuel quickly so early on. Fans expected that from Obi Toppin, and you're not seeing that. So there are obviously many reasons for that, but it'd be nice to see Toppin start to contribute at a higher level and I think help these Knicks win some games. They got Utah later on this evening as we tape this on Tuesday night, and that'll finish out this four-game road trip where it'd be great to somehow get to 500, go 2-2 two and two on that road trip. 
Then they return home Friday night versus the Cavs. You got the Clippers on Sunday and then at Chicago. Uh, those will be the next, you know, four games before we rejoin you next Tuesday again. I mean, look, JYD, bottom line with this team, they're playing hard. They're 8-10. and 10. They've lost a couple of tough games here on the road. They're still currently in the eighth spot in the Eastern Conference as far as the playoffs. I think overall through 18 games, you've seen that this team, it feels like every time they lose, you're expecting them, okay, well, here we go again, and they're going to go into the tank and start getting smoked in these games. That's not going to happen with this team. It feels like this team is what it is. They're going to find ways to win some games. They're still going to learn in the process of losing some close games, but ultimately they're going to compete night in, night out and put themselves in a position where maybe they can fight for a playoff spot this year. It's all about the fight. And I, you know, and I keep reiterating tips. You know, tips have them at a confident level, a consistent level where the effort is there. Even in, like you said, in, in games that would be potentially blowouts, they find a way to fight back. I like the fact that this team has some grit. And I like the fact that, you know, Mitchell Robinson and, you know, Nerlens Noel, these guys are really holding down some rim protection. I know last game they didn't get any blocks, but the games before that, they had some tremendous rim protection. Again, we talked about this, Sal. This West Coast trip, they need to win two games to be for real playoff contenders one out of three one out of uh, one out of four is obviously acceptable for where the knicks have been but to win two games in this type of west coast atmosphere would be huge but they're gonna have a tough one hands full against utah yeah, Utah, the last time they lost, believe it or not, was when they lost to the Knicks. Utah has won eight straight, one of the best teams in the league currently, sitting at 12-4, and four, so it will be a tough task for the Knicks, a team who obviously is built on their defense and playing hard. Someone that used to be able to do that at the Garden for those Knicks teams in the 90s who played defense and played hard night in, night out. John Starks will be coming up next on Big Apple Buckets. Keep it right here. Well, every week I say that, you know, it's an honor and a pleasure to be joined by whatever guest that we have. And a lot of times it's true, but JYD right now, this is my favorite player of all time, probably in any sport. And it is an honor and a dream come true to be having him on our podcast right now. It is former Nick All-Star, former Six Man of the Year, the super stub, and of course the guy who gave everything he had night in, night out. That would be number three for the Knicks, John Starks. John, it is a pleasure to be joined by you on this podcast here. What have you been up to these days here with the Knicks? It's been uh, it's been a tough ride, obviously for pretty much like everybody, you know, during this pandemic, and uh, been doing a lot of Zoom Zoom stuff uh, right now. I uh, kind of still interacting with uh, with the uh, uh, with the public and what we do uh, to keep them updated on uh, on all the things that we're doing over here at the Knicks. Doing some uh, Garden of Dreams, just kind of you know, just try to do as much as we can, you know, and and be safe at the same time. And John, these I, current Knicks have been playing pretty well here, off to a good start, and it's something that. Look, I mean, you're a guy who gave everything he had, as we talked about, a guy who played with passion and energy and and was defense first on all those 90s Knicks teams. This team resembles that a little bit. Finally, it's been a long time, but even, you know, look, an 8-10 and start, they finally play hard here with Coach Tibbs, a guy who I know you're familiar with, but they're playing hard at both ends of the floor. That's got to bring some joy back to you watching these teams the way that this current Knicks team is playing defense. It, it definitely does. Uh, you know, you know with Tib what you was going to get, the type of coach, uh, coaching that he was going to bring to the table. And, and uh, I always said that, you know, this team is definitely going to have a defensive uh, identity, and that's what it got. That's what it have right now is a defensive identity. You know, 
every night, you know, going into the game, you know you're going to give yourself a chance to win. Because, you know, your offense, as you know, come and go. But your defense can be steadfast every single night. And Jay, <laughs> Junkie or Dog, he knows that. So, you know, if you go out there and you play the way you're capable of playing on that end of the court, you're going to have a lot of times going to keep you in the game. It's going to give yourself plenty of time to uh, win a lot of ball games. And so, they hit a rough patch right now, uh, obviously out west, uh, but they got a chance to, you know, go 500, uh, you know, for this road trip uh, with a, hopefully a win tonight against Utah. It's going to be a big night tonight, but definitely a shout out from the dog pound to my brother John Starks for coming on the show. And I have to recognize Sal for not mentioning this is actually the people's champ, John Starks, right? <laughs> this is the people's champ always laying it down for the Knicks fans. Uh, Gritty always was doing what he, doing the best he could for the city and representing and starting from the bottom. And one player that I see currently kind of starting from the bottom this year's rookie, Quigley. He's come in, he's kind of given us a spark. And talk a little bit about what you see in him, John. Man, I, lo I love him as a player, man. But he act like he's probably about a 15-year season veteran <laughs> out there on the court. He, you watch you watch his mannerism and his, you know, his poise and everything that he does. And, you know, I, I watch young players and see the confidence that, and we all do it, you know, being former players, but we watch them and see how they command the team out there on the court, especially a, a point guard, which he plays the point guard and he commands it. And those guys are listening to him. And, and that says a lot about his leadership and what he brings to the table. But I also watch how he interacts with the referees and, and what have you. And you could just seem like he's been there for years. That's what I get out of him. It seems like he's been there for years and, and it don't seem like any moment is too big for him out there on the court. So, you know, I, I just love him as a, as a player and I love him as a person. He seems like a great kid. I haven't got a chance to meet him face to face, but just, you know, watching him seems like a, a, a incredible individual. John, you know, this Knicks team is about defense and attacking the rim, which I feel like is something that is so rare in today's game. It's been la lazy basketball teams come up. You know, you'd be criticized if you took a, a, a three back in the 90s. Meanwhile, now everybody's coming up to shooting from midcourt uh, and, and, <laughs> and they're considered okay shots. It's crazy, but the yeah. Knicks play an old-school style of basketball defense and attacking the basket. Can that be successful where we're in a league now that's so reliant on the jump shot? Yeah, no, it definitely can be successful. Two always going to be is a good bucket in in this game. You know what I mean? People just get so mesmerized by the three point line, and and they figure like if they can shoot enough of them and and can make ten, they go go by the analytics. But I always say two points wins you wins you basketball game. You look at Houston did in the year that uh, they had uh, pushed uh, Golden State to a game seven, and they missed like twenty seven straight three-pointers and the Golden State was just hitting twos and they sprinkle in a couple of threes but mainly twos you know what I mean and it's you know and you win basketball games that way uh, I love the way like you said that they're attacking the basket you know what I mean and they have to do that they have to they're not obviously going to be a great three-point shooting team but they got capable uh, three-point shooters out there that can knock it down quickly can knock it down, you know, Knox can knock it down. You know, you got guys that can knock down, you know, the shots when it's open. But that shouldn't be the whole focus on your game plan is to go out there and try to jack up as many threes as possible. 
the key is to put the ball in the basket and stop the other team on the other end. And they've been doing that. And I tell you what, Randall was having an all-star season, period. You know what I mean? If he not selected for all-star, you know, I'd be shocked. But he is, like, just turning it up, like playing like like a man among, amongst boys out there. So everything looking pretty good, you know, as you know. And, and as we all know, you're going to go through some ups and downs during the season. It's just how you write those those downs and, and don't let them just be a pitfall, you know what I mean, and, and, and come out of it. And, and I think that's what they've been – able to do uh, very successful when they do go through a, a, a tough patch like this. They're able to stop it and, and get back on the winning ways uh, that they have been doing lately. For sure. I mean, you, you mentioned taking it to the cup, man. I got to take you back to the 90s. Now, you and I, we've had many conversations about this next play I'm about to ask you to reminisce about, but you know what I'm talking about. I need you to tell the people what you tell me when it comes down to driving the lane and the play is called the dunk. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's you know, as you know, uh, you going into to the lane, especially back then, you had to go in there with a purpose. <laughs> you had to go with some bad intentions on your mind. So <laughs> that particular play is just something that needed to happen at that particular time. And obviously, the game was in, still hanging in the balance, and I was able to uh, go in strong and complete the play against Chicago Bulls in the '93 playoffs, and it was became the dunk. Uh, I I tell people, obviously Jordan and and Horace was in there, but Jordan got in there and made it look good. <laughs> but he always said I never dunked. I, I didn't dunk on him, but obviously we, you know we we see the picture, we see that he's off the ground, and we see that he's trying to block it. So he didn't get the brunt of it. Horace Horace Grant got the brunt of it, but he got in there and he got a little piece of it. So. <laughs> He got a piece of the uh, action. Yeah. yeah, he got a piece of the action. You know what I mean? So, but uh, no, it. I would say if that play happened anywhere but the Garden, if it happened in Chicago, it's just another play because it was happening in the world most famous arena. Uh, the Garden it would made it so uh, uh, iconic of a play, and who was against obviously the Chicago Bulls. One of the most well, famous posters the, of all time, no, no question about it. Jay, why do you got one of those posters hanging? I know, I know, I got a, a couple in my office. You have any <laughs> posters hanging? I, I, I keep myself in my office. I keep my my dunk posters <laughs> in my office. I know that's right. But listen, listen, I've been on many of appearances with John, right? And John is the character. I love him to death. And and we <laughs> and if that if that question don't come up at least three to four times in appearance, right? I mean, right. it, it, it's amazing how one play can take you in the city of New York, you know, because yep. at the end of the day, you know, that was iconic. And like he said, you know, everybody remembers it. And that's what makes it special. You know, when people remember certain things in your career and, and if you have that to go on your resume as a, as a career, you know, staple, like that's, that's something to have. So I, I, yeah, I always yeah, appreciate going, going on appearances with John because it's going to get feisty. He can always shut him down. <laughs> yeah, ninety three. Remember to play. They all ah, oh, they everybody. <laughs> good stuff, man. Uh, hey, John, did you watch the Last Dance? I mean, I know that was a big thing during the pandemic, where there was no sports going on, and I know some former Knicks, you know, your nineties Knicks teammates and Van Gundy was saying, "I don't have to rewatch it." 
I lived it. Did you watch any of that? I mean, you were a guy who I know was a big fan of Michael Jordan before you got into the NBA and then all those years competing at a high level against him. Did you check out the last dance and relive some of those memories against those Bulls teams? Oh, no question. Not like everybody else. You know what I mean? I was uh, fascinated by it. Uh, I thought it was well done. Maybe probably two episodes too long. <laughs> Uh, other than that, I thought it was well done. It really captured the essence of uh, of the 90s basketball back then. Uh, even, you know, the late 80s, early 90s and on, on from there, uh, I thought it was well done in that aspect. And, you know, you play against a, a guy such as Michael Jordan, you know, the Scotty Pippins of the world, and but you really don't get to know them. Uh, I thought this kind of humanized, you know, Michael. You know what I mean? And it kind of showed him in a whole different light and what drove him as a uh, as a player and what made him into this great individual. You know what I mean? And uh, I thought it captured all of that. And so I was like taken back uh, to that time frame and like, wow, I didn't know that. You know, I didn't know what every single day he did to, you know, make himself into that type of player and what drove him uh, and what that sensation uh, tasteable uh, attitude that he had about the game of basketball. So that that was what truly fascinated me about that whole uh, whole uh, episode. And Michael Jordan, you know, had a predecessor in 1996 draft, whose anniversary of his death today, Kobe Bryant, rest in peace. You know, talk a little bit about Kobe and uh, what you what you uh, gathered from your career and his career, and some of the memories you might have had. Yeah, Kobe was special, you know. He was a special player. Uh, you know, I probably grew to appreciate him more, you know, as I got older. You know, obviously at that time, you know, I'm competing against him. And so my whole mentality was just to go in and try to, like, you know, destroy him. I thought he was coming to destroy me. And so as I retired and really kind of watched, step back and kind of watch him grow even more as a player, especially after Shaq, uh, those uh, Laker days when uh, Shaq moved on and he was there by himself. You know, you grow to appreciate an uh, individual like that, you know, because, you know, everybody knew that his idol was Michael Jordan and everybody knew that he copied his game, you know, after Michael Jordan. And, and you know, for some players, they probably like, oh, man, look at him. You're trying to be like Michael Jordan. Well, if you're trying to reach to the stratosphere, why not reach for the to try to be like the best there is, you know what I mean? And he took on that challenge to do that. Not too many guys will even want to even try to do that. You always heard about guys getting drafted over the next Jordan, the baby Jordan, and this and that, blah, blah, blah. But they never got to that point. He about got the closest to being Michael Jordan, you know what I mean? Because he's patterning his game after Michael Jordan, his mannerisms and everything was just after Michael Jordan. And he got to that level where you can like, wow, you know, you didn't think nobody could even get close to Michael, but he was able to do that. But it was even more so than being a basketball uh, player, but all the things that he did outside the game of basketball. I didn't realize how big Kobe was until I, I knew he was big, but when I went over to China and uh, we did a, a clinic over there for the NBA. Jerome, you've probably been on those trips. And so we did a, a clinic over there for the NBA, and I was just, wow. Kobe was like huge. I mean, almost mythical, <laughs> you know, like a god over there. And that's why I was like, okay, he really like took it to a whole nother level. And, and the effect that he had on people and kids over there, it was just amazing uh, to see. And uh, But he was just an incredible father. You can tell 
you know, his love for his kids, his love for his wife, and just a family man. And, uh, you know, that beautiful daughter over here is Deanna. Uh, it was just amazing, their interaction and how he foresees uh, the future for her and the whole Mamba mentality, you know what I mean, that he was just like unleashed on the world, you know, it was just amazing. And so, you know, we do mourn a, a great individual, a great basketball player, and uh, someone that life has got cut short, uh, him, his daughter, and the seven other people, they life has got cut short, you know, so we mourn them on this day. Hey, John, it's Jake here. It's definitely a tragic loss today. As we look back, I was actually at that Knicks-Nets game that night. You could hear a pin dropping at MSG that night. It just didn't feel like basketball should be played. Um, can you compare guarding those two guys? Was one a bigger trash talker than the other? Uh, was one more fierce? Can you compare? I mean, obviously, you guarded Kobe later in your career, Jordan, in yeah. his prime, but uh, can you compare guarding the two legends? Yeah, Kobe was more, Kobe talked more noise than Michael. You know what I mean? Michael was so focused on focused on uh, on what he had to do out there on the court. Uh, I think Kobe, uh, I think he had that with probably all Michael nemesis. You know what I mean? He had the same thing with uh, uh, Reggie. You know what I mean? Where he would like try to like relive that whole you know Reggie Michael Jordan you know deal. Uh, you know com- uh, competitiveness as well as me and Michael. But he used to talk noise. I remember we played. This is like when I got traded to uh, Golden State, and it's my first year at Golden State in the lockout season, which was uh, 99, Jerome, I think. Was it lockout season? Yeah, 99. Yeah, 99 is lockout, yeah. Yeah, knockout. And uh, me and him, uh, I was fighting for a uh, playoff spot, you know, when I was with Golden State. And me and him and Michael was at the game, and he got the talking noise to me, right? (laughs) And we (laughs) go back and forth. I'm like, you young buck, what are you talking about? And Michael (laughs) at the game, so – I walked over to Michael. I said, Michael, look at him. Try to act like you. Like, like I'm saying, I'm going to have to come out here and give it to him. <laughs> I think I had like 20 like some points. He had like 30. They end up winning the game and what have you. But, you know, it was all fun and games. But he, he, he was just a competitive individual. You know what I mean? And he reminded me so much of Michael. You know what I mean? But like I say, he, he probably talked more than Michael than Michael talked. Because Michael, was, like I say, is so focused on what he had to do. I think that's the thing that I loved about Kobe uh, and Michael and yourself, John, more than anything else is the competitiveness. We know about the talent and the ability, but the competitiveness. And I know for you, that's something that's something that, I mean, that made you that, that's something that Pat Riley used to talk about all the time, your competitiveness. That's something that I feel like is lost in today's game, your passion, your determination, your will, and your sheer competitiveness, which is why fans like me, Loved you. You you think back, John, I mean, how history would have changed, not only for you personally, but for the Knicks. I mean, we look now as we're 20 years removed, essentially, from when you were playing with those 90s Knicks in the playoffs all those years. Obviously, the last time they won a championship, 73. How your history, the Knicks history, this city, if Hakeem didn't get uh, a, a hand on that shot in Game 6? Oh, yeah. You think about that all the time, man. It's just... You know, it, it was uh, a play made by a great player. Anybody else, I would have probably got that shot off on that team. You know, King was 6'10", but agile as anyone. You know, joking about he <laughs> he guarded him, you know, at times, I think. and uh, But he was just an agile big man, and uh, it was just a great play. Yeah, I think about it all the time. I'm like, man, if, that, if he wouldn't have got his fingertips on that, because I was on fire, and that shot felt 
so good when it left my hand. And I was like shocked that he was able to get his fingertips on the ball. Do you think about last one for me, John, about what if Patrick Ewing didn't hurt you in that practice in 1990? Does your career <laughs> career with the Knicks even happen? What if you don't get hurt? What if the Knicks release you? The legend of John Starks, you might not be on Big Apple Buckets right now. <laughs> Uh, you're probably right. <laughs> no, it's uh, yeah, I think about that too sometimes. You know, I really do. Jeff Van Gundy always tell me that now nah, we was gonna keep you yeah right. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. After the fact, right? Uh, no, but I no, I do think about that. You know, it's funny how things just kind of work out for a reason. And uh, obviously, you know, me getting hurt and being able to stick around on I uh, uh, really gave me a chance to, uh, you know, stick around with the team and, you know, do, and do what I did, you know, for all those years. Man, it's, it's just been a blessing, to be honest with you. You know, I'm glad it worked out the way it worked out. You gave everything you had for eight years to that team. And look, I mean, I know you played in the NBA for other teams as well, but... You were a New Yorker. You were all about New York, all about the those Knicks and those 90s playoff battles. And there were so many that ended in frustration, but there were so many great ones too. Is there any one? I mean, look, you got the Ewing finger roll. You got the Charles Smith stuff. You got the game six, game seven of the 94 finals. You got the, the suspensions against the Heat years later. Is there any one year in particular that sticks out more than others. I know the obvious one would be game seven, but we mentioned game six, seven. Is there any one in particular that you look back and say, man, that was really, that was really our year. When Allen and uh, Larry them got here, uh, when they came in 96, the, the first fight with Miami, uh, the one PJ Brown basically, you know, flipped Charlie Ward, you know, because that team right there, I, I would say that was our most complete team uh, from an offensive standpoint. Because uh, you look at teams before, we were primarily built for defense. We really wasn't built for uh, offensive explosion, you know, type of team. You know what I mean? Because we had to hold teams within, you know, that 75 to 90 points in order on a nightly basis. And we were able to do that because we were a very good defensive team and, and grind out a lot of wins. But that team right there, you know, we were very explosive from an offensive standpoint. And plus, you know, it gave us a lot of outside shooting with myself on the floor, Larry, as well as Allen and, uh, you know, Charlie or Chris in there at the point guard. Uh, we was able to surround Patrick with shooters, which freed him up uh, to play one-on-one. And I can remember, you know, the last uh, game of the season, we was playing against Chicago Bulls. And it was like a test for us, in, in a sense. And I can remember the last play where I hit the, the game winning three to like, you know, kind of feel the victory. We threw the ball in. They went to go double. They swung, 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 and it came to me because <laughs> they didn't have no choice but to go double. Uh, and with, I ended up knocking down the shot and I could just see Phil Jackson over there dejected. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> On the sideline, I'm like, yeah, we got y'all this year. Now we got shooters. You know what I mean? With the baby yeah. around Patrick. So y'all can't, can't really double off nobody. And, uh, and then we came out and rolled Cleveland. I think we uh, swept them. I think that was the first, uh, first series. And we ended up. Uh, beating, uh, well, we was up 3-1 on, on Miami, ended up getting in the fight, and that, I don't know, I don't even want to go rehash that, because uh, that was wrong. What happened there? 
far as the suspensions and what have you. And uh, but we felt like, oh yeah, we're getting ready to, you know, go to the championship. Cause we knew we had Chicago that year, and they knew that we had them too. But we never got a chance to prove it. And you, you yeah. guys had him, and then it, that bull crap happened with Charlie Ward. And, and look, I can't blame you guys for coming off the bench trying to defend your teammate, a smaller guy in particular with Charlie Ward. And game six and game seven were ruined because of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The Sal call spots, man. Look, Sal, keep you on here forever. <laughs> I didn't want to tell you this. I think Listen, Sal is in a Starks jersey look, Sal, right now. Okay, Sal. I got to pipe you down. John, John has blessed us with, with his time and his attention, and I want to make sure we shout out a few things because as a retired player, he's an idol for a lot of guys. He's out here working like a Jamaican. He got like 10 jobs. He's working, doing things, camps overseas for the NBA. He's a Knicks alumni relations. He's got a cigar shop. He's doing – fitness body boards and he's even got he's even got a new paint edger like called what is it cutting gold what is that cutting yeah, gold talk, cut go. talk to it talk to us a little bit about it, john yeah no nah, it's, it's cutting and go cut and go uh paintbrush edger so what it is is a is a edger that you uh put the paintbrush slide this paintbrush in and you know how hard it is to edge you know i do a painter i do but yeah you know yeah so you didn't paint before so, you know how, i didn't paint it before you know <laughs> I know how you know, hard it is it's going to mess some yeah, stuff right? up. <laughs> exactly. So this this really uh, does a great job at really getting in there and cutting the edges and making sure that the paint is not getting all on the wood. Because that's the worst thing, you know, as a painter. It's just like you have to go and wipe, re-wipe it what have you. So this does the job for you. And John, I mean, you get, you get a, a, bunch, a bunch of other stuff. You mentioned the John Starks Foundation, all the stuff that you're doing with the Knicks and the Knicks alumni relations currently. And I know it's a little different because you're not out at the garden necessarily with the, you know, with COVID, but hopefully we get to see you back there soon. And I'll tell you, I love the JYD. You make fun of me. Look, I could do another hour. I love Starks. I mean, that passion, he represented New York. <laughs> as, I want to see that number three up to the Raptors. They, they, hey, John, after you left, they give Dennis Scott number three, which I could not believe the disrespect. Dennis Scott, of all people. Hang Dennis on, Scott. The Raptors. Dennis hey, Scott number three. What are you kidding me? Come Don't on. get him started. Don't get him started, John. You know you keep it going. We're, we're gonna have to have him on again and have a couple of cigars from your shop and discuss all of these things. John. Cigar that's shop, right. yeah, cigar shop, total body board, fitness board, the paint edger. Check everything out that John Starks is doing. John, we appreciate the time. Love having you on and. I speak for, I believe, every Nick fan when I say thank you for laying it out there every single night you gave everything you had. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you joining us, of course, me and JYD on the Big Apple Buckets podcast. Appreciate you, bro. I appreciate you guys, man. Much love, bro. Y'all take care. Joining us now is longtime Knicks beat writer for the New York Post, Mark Berman. Follow Mark on Twitter at nypost underscore Berman and read his stories in the post and at nypost.com. Mark, what could you tell us here about the sad news where the Knicks lost a member of their championship team from the 72-73 season, Harthorne Wingo? Yeah, in fact, their last uh, championship team, which is quite depressing but uh yeah Wingo was obviously a bit player on that squad played only in 14 games but after that season and after he got a ring he actually became sort of a cult hero he made the rotation and fans loved his name and anytime he came into the game the chance of Wingo rang out at the garden 
spoke to Marv Albert uh, yesterday about it, and he had some vivid and very fond memories, always had a big smile on his face. The moment he got up from the bench and walked to the scorer's table, the, the fans started cheering. As he was mentioned in a Beastie Boys song, yeah, sort of a cult icon, wasn't drafted. It was sort of a success story. Played four seasons uh, with the Knicks before going overseas. It's been, been a harsh few days here, and I know that uh, you know Knicks fans are, are, are up and down because they're seeing a lot of great things from uh, this young team. Can you talk about... Emmanuel quickly and and the possibility of him remaining a starter. Listen, it's a giant issue on social media with the fans. They want to see quickly in the starting lineup. I disagree. I think once you make the move, you can't go back. I think he's perfect where he is. I think Thibodeau is such a smart coach. He knows when to extend his minutes. He knows when to have him finish the game and not Payton. Payton is still the better defender. Obviously, quickly does so many more things on the offensive end. But why fix something that's not exactly broken? This is working. Listen, they've lost the last two games, but they're on the West and they're kind of exhausted. But I think Thibodeau has shown something by not reflexively putting quickly into the lineup. It's about combinations, and he likes what quickly looks like with Rivers, even with Toppin, uh, with the second unit, Noel. I mean, he's he's finding himself, and he's comfortable, and I like it the way it is for now. And you could change it in three weeks. But for now, I like Thibodeau st- standing firm on it. I'm with you, Mark. I think fans got to calm down. Just because he has a few exciting minutes and closes out some games here scoring points doesn't mean that you got to make him a starter right away. Let him grow. Let him develop and ease them in. Plus, Peyton's done a good job defensively. You know, the other rookie, Obi Toppin, he's finally looking healthy here and starting to get some more minutes. Obviously, not as impactful as Emmanuel quickly just yet. What are your thoughts on Obi Toppin so far, Mark? Well, you know, he plays power forward, and Julius Randle has been at an all-star level every single game. So even even on an off night, there hasn't been one. So Obi has played a limited minutes. Naturally, he was hurt for three weeks also. But listen, he looks like he's the type of rookie that needed a summer league. He needed to adjust from Dayton University, Atlantic 10. It's not Kentucky where quickly played. And it would have been a nice adjustment for him to play in the summer league and have that month before showing up to training camp uh, with scrimmages with your teammates. Didn't have any of it. So he looks sometimes lost, and he needs to improve his three-point shooting. Uh, Stretch four is the big thing in the NBA, and he doesn't quite look like a stretch four right now. Today is also um, one of those days where we look back at uh, the memory of my 1996 draft mate, Kobe Bean Bryant. It's a somber day for me, uh, for the memory of Kobe, but talk a little bit about uh, your coverage of Kobe throughout the years. Yeah, well, I mean, just a year ago, I was driving to the Garden, to the Long Island Railroad, and all of a sudden on the radio, and or rather on Twitter, you just hear that, you know, unconfirmed reports that, you know, he had was in that helicopter crash, and it was such a crazy night at the Garden, and the fans were just amazing and uh, giving the tributes, and the scoreboard, the whole lighting was all purple. And just in the aftermath, the amazing part with Kobe, he he had this reputation as a tough teammate to play with. He was so hard on you, sort of in that Jordan-esque way. And he may have been that way, and it may have been exaggerated, but to read all the tributes to him about after he retired and how he reached out and seemed to befriend 
so many star players and non-star players in the league. Even Julius Randle of the Knicks said he, he was so helpful to him. And just to read that after his death, it, it, we didn't talk about that while he was still alive. But after his death, it just came out. All these people out of the woodwork saying what a great mentor and what great advice he gave. He would reach out to people, call them unannounced. And that's what really struck me uh, post-death COVID. You know, all the players in today's NBA that he's impacted, no question about it. All right, Mark, thanks for joining us. We appreciate the couple of minutes. Make sure you follow Mark on Twitter at NYPost underscore Berman. Read his stories in the post and at NYPost.com. Thanks, Mark. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That does it for us for episode 30, the Julius Randle edition of Big Apple Buckets. Thanks to Jake Brown and Alex Camarada for producing the show. Make sure you subscribe to Big Apple Buckets on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Write a nice review, please. I mean, it helps. Go to Apple and write those reviews. We appreciate it. For Jerome Williams, I'm Sal Licata. We'll chat with you guys next Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, stay safe.